Well, election coverage was swept off the news by Hurricane Sandy. See a picture here that they were showing last weekend, and they were they were predicting a superstorm because of the different fronts that were coming in, and it certainly turned out to be a very significant superstorm. This picture kind of tells it all for New York. We were just at the Statue of Liberty, my family and I, this past summer. That whole island is covered. It's just unbelievable in terms of the amount of water uh, that's there. And we see this picture of a house. It's totally gone. This is in Staten Island. Staten Island was hit very hard. Forty-one people died there out of the 74 that have died so far uh, because of this terrible storm. And another picture here we see of a tree that has crushed this car. And that's how most of the deaths occurred, falling trees. You maybe heard the story of the 12- and 13-year-old boy, boys who were in the family room and the tree fell and killed them both. We see stories of some flooding here in the subway. In New York. Imagine Chicago, you know, if you take uh, the L sometimes. It's filled with water. Another picture here of uh, a taxi parking lot filled with water. In fact, one woman was holding on to her two little kids and the storm waters rushed through her car and swept them away. They found them later. The other pictures here of just people who are in pain, reflecting upon what's gone on. Imagine you looking at your house, and your house is gone. Such, such tremendous emotional pain. Um, just hundreds of thousands of people's lives were turned upside down, uprooted like these trees. Their lives were uprooted. All security was taken away from them. All the things that they had built their lives around were taken away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we reflect on this terrible storm, the second worst behind Katrina in American history. And we uh, are so devastated as we look at these news reports and think about... uh, people who are in such grief today over lost loved ones, over lost homes, over lost businesses, over lost dreams, people whose lives are so now so much more complicated than they were before. We pray that you would comfort these people, that you would provide for them. I pray that, uh, that if people don't know you, are in the midst of this, that for this traumatic situation, they would come to know you. I pray for our brothers and sisters in the churches on the East Coast. I pray for the pain that they're going through personally, the suffering. I pray that you would, again, comfort them, of course, as you promised. And I pray for them as they have a unique opportunity to speak out to people who are in need where everything has been taken away that they've depended upon and to have that opportunity to show compassion and love and communicate to them there's only one thing that's for sure in this life. That's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, we also pray for our country this week as we approach a very important election. Lord, I pray that people would take seriously their responsibility vote. 
pray that there be a high turnout. I pray that Christians certainly would not be apathetic in any sense of the word when it comes to submitting to government. That's one of our responsibilities to vote. It's the type of government that we're in. Lord, I I pray that your will might be done. Lord, you've already chosen the winner. (laughs) Uh, Lord, we give it all to you. And no matter who is elected, Lord, we know that in the end, obviously, government is not the solution. Nothing's a solution except for Jesus Christ. And thank you that we as a church, you've given us this incredible privilege to tell the world what the true solution is. Lord, fill us, fill us uh, with compassion. In Christ's name, amen. You know, we look at those pictures, and many times with national tragedies, we think of Katrina, how people just respond by giving money, traveling to the location, 9-11, doing everything that we can to help those people. And, and that is the right thing to do, no doubt. But many times when there isn't a national tragedy going on, we tend to live our lives without seeing the needs of people around us, people who are struggling week after week, year after year. And because it's not on the news and it's not significant in our eyes, per se, with everything else that's going on. We just don't dial in. Well, we're beginning a new series this morning that I'm very excited about, A Call to Compassion. We cast our heartstrong vision last March, and part of that was a call of compassion to our community, to love our community, to love our neighbor. And we're beginning that journey today as a congregation, in order to figure out, okay, God, we want you to grow our individual hearts, our heart as a family, to show compassion to others in your name. Show us how to do that. Grow us. Empower us to be a church that's passionate about compassion. So, we are going to begin this journey in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. I always encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. A couple other references before we get to that. Compassion is a command. We see this in Colossians 3.12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to put on compassionate hearts. Put on is the idea of clothing yourself. And you clothe yourself every day. So not only should you be dressed physically, but you should be dressed spiritually. You get dressed up every day. And you pray to the Lord, Lord, fill me with a heart of compassion today. What is compassion? Well, helping others in need in the name of Jesus Christ. Helping others in need in the name of Jesus Christ. Why should we do it? It's commanded, but more importantly... We want to be like our Father. Luke 6:36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. When we think about our God and how merciful He's been to you and I, the grace He's poured out on us, how His mercies are new every morning as we go through all the challenges of life, how He sustains us in the midst of difficulties. We want to be like Him. 
And we do that through the power of Christ. And I want to look at this story in Luke chapter 10, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's very familiar uh, to all of us. It's really an idiom in our American culture. People generally know what a Good Samaritan is. They kind of have an idea of what the story is. Many times you'll see news stories, and they'll say, here's a Good Samaritan. It's usually somebody who sacrificially showed kindness to someone, where we all kind of look up and say, wow, they really, they really love that other person. They really sacrificed for that person. I was talking with a, a new friend, Tom Jensen. In fact, he's going to be speaking here the last week of this month as a part of our series, and he was the director of Compassion Ministries over at Willow Creek for a time and just has such a heart for people. And we were talking about this particular parable, and he gave me some new insights to it. So I was studying those insights, and I think that uh, maybe you'll hear some things that you haven't heard before about this particular parable and really what the main point of it was. All right, so let's uh, dive in here, Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer, not the kind of lawyer we think about, but a scribe, someone who was an expert in the law, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he was trying to test Jesus Christ here, as they were always trying to do, trying to trap him in what he said so they could use it against him. We've seen a lot of that in the last several months in the election, right? Uh, people trying to trap the candidates, and then they take a sound bite of what they said, and they advertise it, and yeah, we've seen a lot of that. Well, that's kind of what he was trying to do. He was trying to get something out of Jesus Christ that he could use against him. Very commonly done, as we've seen in the Gospels. So he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus Christ comes right back, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I mean, this guy's a scribe. He should know how to inherit eternal life. He said, you tell me. You tell me. And so the scribe said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or excuse me. And the scribe answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is what they called the Shema. And religious Jews would repeat this twice a day, in the morning and the evening. This was the core of the law. Jesus Christ said this summed up all the Old Testament laws. They were to keep it in front of them. They were to put it on their doorposts and wear it on their bodies. This is the core of the law. And so he repeats it. And also is the core of our heart-strong vision that we've talked about, loving God and and loving people. And if you really take a very close look and meditate upon this particular command, it really is very difficult to do. <laughs> you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. All your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, you're loving God with everything that you have. Now, as I reflect upon my life in the last year or so, I, I can maybe think of times where I've really been up there in regards to reaching that goal or even kind of moving toward that goal, but I don't think I've ever been all been there. <laughs> I mean, 
loving God with everything that I have, being fully engaged. And the second thing is even more understandable to us because it's more empirical, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I love myself. Now, you might not have a good self-esteem, but in the sense of loving yourself, you give a lot of attention to yourself, you think about yourself, make plans for yourself, try to make life as pleasant as possible for yourself. Now, loving yourself in that way, how many times have you loved someone else in that way? Were you given that much time, that much thought, that much energy to making their life better as you have with your life? And again, I think about the last year, and I can maybe pick out a couple times where I've kind of approached that level, just approached it, not come near it. I'm thinking, that's impossible to do. I mean, really, to truly love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a tall order here when you really stop to think about it. So we go on to verse 28. And he said to him, that's Jesus, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> Do this and you will live? Is Jesus Christ really saying if you love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself, you will have eternal life? Isn't Jesus Christ teaching a works-based righteousness that you can get to heaven by your good works? It certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? But really, he was toying with the scribe, which he loved to do. <laughs> he, know, he knew what was going through this guy's head. And so if this scribe had answered out of humility, if, if this scribe really was concerned about inheriting eternal life, the only thing he could say to this particular command is, Jesus, I, I can't do that. I, I can't love God like that. I mean, I have... Some days that are better than others, but really, I mean, everything I've got, uh, that's not going to happen. And loving my neighbor as myself, yes, I can point to a few examples, but most of the time I'm loving myself, and that's all the love I have. That's what he would do if he was honest. He says, there's no way I can do that. And that's what, that's what Jesus' point was. This is the law, the whole purpose of the law is to show us that we're not good enough, that we're sinners, that we can never measure up to God's standards. But, of course, the self-righteous lawyer wasn't thinking about that. In fact, he says in Luke 10:29, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, you think about it, how he might be thinking here. Okay, all right, so Jesus says I need to love God. I've got that settled. I'm good. I'm loving God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, so we won't even talk about God. That's all taken care of. All right, all right now, neighbor, I'm doing a pretty good job, but maybe Jesus could get some, some new insight here. Now, again, he was testing him, but let's say he was maybe thinking that. So give me some more information. And really, his whole point was to justify himself. So Jesus would give an example. And he said, yeah, I've done that. Give me another example. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I'm great at loving my neighbor. 
show me maybe a neighbor that I haven't loved. So that's the setup for the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's very important to understand the context of this parable, as with any parable. So, verse 30, Jesus replied. He starts the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the listeners of any parable of Christ would understand the context. They would know the road from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho. But, of course, we don't. So that's why we need to really dig in here and find out some of the background in regards to what this particular road was and what it meant to listeners when they heard this. Well, you see a map here of Israel, and you see Jerusalem down there in the left corner, and you see Jericho right near uh, Gilgal. This is a topographical map. So 17 miles and all downhill. Jerusalem was 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho was 1,000 feet below sea level. So 4,000 foot drop over these 17 miles. Now here's a picture of the Jericho Road today. You see it there on the left? Whoa! <laughs> That's not much of a road. <laughs> How many of you gone out to Colorado or some other... Uh, state with mountain ranges, and uh, your family's going to go up all the way to the top, and you're you're looking at this road that you're going on. How many of you have said no possible way? You can drop me at the McDonald's at the bottom. I will pray for you as you climb that particular road. I'll pray that I'll have a family when I return. How many of you just said no possible way? Am I doing that? Okay. How many said yes under protest? <laughs> How many will never do that again? <laughs> right. It is harrowing. We were on Colorado several years ago, and we went on one of those roads, and it's nerve-wracking. And I always ask the people who at the top, how many cars have actually fallen off there? <laughs> I felt that way at certain times, that that could have been uh, the case. Well... Uh, that's the Jericho Road. Very treacherous. You take a wrong step and you're going over the side. But it was known for being very dangerous because you had highwaymen, they called them, who would rob. Uh, they would hide in caves and had all kinds of turns and uh, winding road. And therefore, they could pop out of anywhere. So it was known up into the 4th century, we know at least, as, hey, that's a dangerous road to walk. So when they heard uh, this Jerusalem to Jericho, right away they thought of everything we've talked about here. He fell among robbers, as expected, on the Jericho road. And they stripped him, they took all, of his, took all of his clothes off, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. They pummeled this guy. They left him half dead. And this guy's in critical condition. He's hanging on to life, and he's laying by the side of the road. Then Jesus says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, again, Jesus is creating the story. He says a priest comes along, he sees the man, and he walks on the other side. He doesn't want to be near the man. He wants to move past the man. Now, why does he say a priest? Well, probably because... A priest was 
one of the spiritual leaders of the land. He was one of the many priests that served in the temple. This is a man who represented the people of Israel to God. He was the one who made the sacrifices. He was the one who should know. He, should, he was the one who should be the most spiritually mature. And if anybody is going to love their neighbor as themselves, you would expect a priest to do that. But the priest did not love his neighbor as himself. He could care less. He walked right on by. Now, we go on to the next verse. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So, you have the tribe of Aaron, and that was uh, the Levite tribe. And you had all these men who were priests, or they were Levites who served at the temple. So, when he says a Levite, the idea is kind of like an assistant priest. So, you had the priest at the temple uh, on the top end, and you have the Levite down here, and then you had the average Israelite person here. So this is a person, really all of the priests and the uh, assistants were farmers. And they would come in two weeks a year, and they had places where they could sleep, and they would serve in the temple. They would do it on a rotation basis. So you had these Levites coming in to serve at the temple. Now, again, they were very respected because they were part of the religious tribe. They were also uh, people who should have known more than anybody else, that the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. But what does the Levite do? He just passes by on the other side. He could care less about his neighbor. Now, it's interesting, as you study different commentaries, what they'll say is things like, well, now, why did these people not want to stop? Well, maybe it was because they didn't want to touch a dead body because they were told not to do that. So you look at the guy, he might have looked dead. But they say maybe it's because if they touch the body, that person would be ceremonially unclean, the priest or the Levite, which meant that they couldn't serve their duty for the next two weeks or whatever period of time to purify themselves in order to enter the temple once again. Maybe that was the reason. Or maybe they were afraid this was a setup and that the robbers were just around the bend and if they stopped to help them, the robbers would take them down as well. It doesn't matter. It's a made-up story. <laughs> it's not a true story. We have no idea. Jesus doesn't care why these men didn't stop. There's only one thing. What was the primary motivation? They didn't care about their neighbor. They didn't love their neighbor. That's what he's trying to say. The people that you would expect to love their neighbor, a Levite and priest, in his story, they could care less. They just walk right on past. Number three, the Samaritan. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, you guys know, most of you know about Samaritans. They were hated by the Jews. In Old Testament times, the Samaritans uh, were Jewish people who had intermarried with Gentiles, something that was not allowed in the law. And therefore, they built a people called the Samaritans, and 
inhabited a land in Israel called Samaria, and the Jews couldn't stand them. And therefore, since the Jews couldn't stand them, the Samaritans couldn't stand the Jews, and this deep bitterness built over years and years and years developed, like the racism that we see in our world today. And as you know, many people that were very religious, they wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would go out of their way, way out of their way, not even to step foot in the place. Of course, what does Jesus Christ do? He walks right through, goes to the woman at the well, ministers to her, leads her to himself and the whole town. That's who Jesus was. He loved his neighbor. But no respect in Jews going to walk through Samaria. So we have a Samaritan. So, again, the twist, as we all know. The last person you would expect to love another Jewish person, and the assumption I think here is that this person who's been beaten is a Jew, is a Samaritan. You'd think the priest or the Levi would, but no. The Samaritan is the one who loves his neighbor. Now, this is... Uh, such a rich passage uh, when we look at how the Samaritan cared for this man. In fact, if you really study it, there's 12 different verbs, 12 different things that the Samaritan did toward the man who had been wounded. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the man, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had eyes of compassion. Now, the Levite priests, they saw him as well, but they didn't have eyes of compassion. They just kind of walked right on by. But the Samaritan saw him and he saw a man who needed help desperately. And he was willing to reach out and help this man. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Now, he didn't have a medical kit around. So what did he use to bind up his wounds and maybe make a tourniquet? This guy was really beaten bad. Maybe he tore up his own robe. Use whatever he had to bind up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Why do you have oil and wine? Well, if you're traveling, you had to have oil and wine, oil to cook and wine to drink. And the oil would help soften and lubricate the wound, and the wine would sanitize it. So he poured it on. In the original language, it speaks of a generous pouring. Not just like a dab, like I'm going to need some later. How much? What's the minimum I can do here? No, he just poured it on. Then he set him up on his own animal. Now this is where the Samaritan gets knee deep in this guy's problems. You know, sometimes with compassion and other people, we kind of like to, to stay out here and say, okay, I'm praying for you and let me know what I can do. I can do it. You know. <laughs> and we kind of keep people at arm's length when we're trying to help them because we don't want to get too involved because if you get too involved, it takes a lot of time. It gets messy. It gets risky. They become dependent on you. Now, there's a place for boundaries in helping people. You have to have boundaries when you're helping a hurting person. That's just healthy. But many of us don't even want to get near it. What happens with the... Samaritan is once he puts that guy on his donkey, I mean, he could have done everything for him and said, I'll send for help. But no, he puts the guy on the donkey or the mule, and he gets knee-deep 
in its province because he's taken on personal responsibility for this man. And uh, as I just look over this congregation and see so many people I've known for a long time, I see people who've gone knee-deep for other people, who've got involved in the mess of another person's life and taken their time and their energy and their financial resources to really help other people. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an inspiration to me. Some far more mature in compassion than I am in terms of the way I approach life. I've got so much to learn. That's why I'm excited about this uh, emphasis. But getting knee-deep is something that people who really love Jesus and are empowered by Jesus do. This guy really takes the next step. So he brought him uh, to an inn. Now, we think about an inn, and we think about these nativity scenes, and I think about an inn based on what I know from studying, and I think of a, a wild west saloon. <laughs> an inn was a place where shady characters hung out. <laughs> you had prostitution running through inns, a lot of crime running through inns. In fact, the person you trusted least was the innkeeper. He was the most corrupt guy in town. <laughs> so, again, that's the only place you could take him. But I just want to clarify, an inn's not a good place. A holiday inn, that's fine. Uh, but not these particular types of inns. Uh, so we took him there, and they weren't fancy places, just a mat on the floor, someplace for shelter. And it's interesting, really, it's really interesting here. He takes them, he takes them here, and later we find out that he pays for future care and for him staying at the end. Now, he could have done that when he got there. He could have said, hey, here's some money, I'm out the door. But no, what does he do? He stays with the man and cares for him overnight. And so many times in compassion, we throw money at issues. We see something on TV, we're moved, and we give money to it. And that's great. I don't want to in any way negate the goodness of giving financial resources to people who are in need. I'm sure in the next couple of weeks, uh, as we get over this storm, uh, there's going to be different places where you can donate money, just like with Katrina and the same type of things we experienced with Katrina. I think we're going to experience uh, with this particular storm of Sandy. And uh, it's all good. But many times we keep issues and people at arm's length. I'll give you money, but don't take any of my time. Don't take any of my emotional energy. Don't get me involved in complicated situations. I don't want to hear about your problems, but here's some money. Go talk to somebody else about your problems. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how we can sometimes go. But this guy gets knee-deep, right? He stays overnight, and he, you can just see him hovering over this broken man and monitoring his health, making sure that he's doing everything he can in order that this man might live. And just all night long he's up and he's, he's checking on him, rebandaging him, uh, getting him food, whatever this guy needs, he's there for that. And the next day, after spending the night, he took two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. 
saying this to an innkeeper? <laughs> when I get back, you tell me how much I owe. Well, you might as well just give all your money to him, right? I mean, this again, knowing the context, is like, this is unbelievable. This guy is paying maybe for a month or two months of stay, plus any type of care that the innkeeper might decide that this man needs. It's really unbelievable, isn't it? Even when we think through it. And the people who are listening to Jesus are saying, who in the world would ever do that for a stranger? That that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen at all. So now, Jesus Christ has the uh, lawyer where he wants him. He asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responded, the one who showed him mercy. Notice he doesn't even want to say the word Samaritan. He wants to say nothing good about a Samaritan. So all he can say is the one. Now, if the Levite or priest was the option, he, he, well, he's all the priest or the Levite, but not Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. And mercy and compassion, they're synonyms very close in Scripture. God is merciful. God is compassionate. It was just a beautiful illustration of compassion. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. There Jesus goes again. He's talking about, hey, you work hard enough, you love your neighbors hard enough, and you'll go to heaven. Is that what Jesus Christ was saying? Well, of course it wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying is, listen. When I say love your neighbor as yourself, this is what I'm talking about. You're saying, who's my neighbor? And I'm saying, how much do you love people? He flipped the question on him. He says, how much do you love people, Mr. Scribe? I'm giving you an illustration of the type of love I want to see. So think about it. What Jesus Christ is saying, it's impossible to love your neighbor like this. It's just impossible. It's impossible to love God like God wants you to love Him. Again, this is another opportunity for the scribe to say, I can't come near that. I wouldn't even do that for anybody. I cannot inherit eternal life because I am not good enough. And that is the point of the parable. The point of the parable, it's all about the gospel. What Jesus Christ is saying to this scribe is, you are not good enough. You think you're good enough, but you'll never be good enough. No one will ever be good enough. We are all sinners. We are all condemned to spiritual death. He's saying the only way you can inherit spiritual life is through me. They're trusting in me and what I'm going to do for you. That's the meaning of the parable. Now, let's think about something else here. Now, usually in parables, the main characters represent someone in the crowd or someone involved in the engagement. So, who was the Good Samaritan in this story? What did it represent? 
What? Jesus. Usually when we study this story, we'll say, okay, we all need to be good Samaritans here. All right, so get out there and go after it. <laughs> no! That's not what it's saying. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the only one who qualifies. Jesus is the only one who has the power and the character to love people like this. We certainly do not. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Now, here's another question. Who is the man who has been beaten on the side of the road? Who is it? That's right. It's us. It's me. It's Dan Harrison. I'm the one who's been beaten silly. I'm spiritually dead at the side of the road. And here comes Jesus with all His love and all His grace and the work that He's going to do on the cross. And He comes by Dan. He says, Dan, I want to give you life. I want to fill your soul with my spirit. I want you to be my child. I want to restore you, Dan. But the only way you can do that is to admit the fact that you can't help yourself. And I'm the only one who can show you this tremendous love. And that's where it breaks down for many people. Because they were taught as a child maybe that they had to work really hard to earn God's love and they have really bought into that. And even when they're told the truth that you can earn God's love, they don't want to let go because they don't want to admit their need. They don't want to have to depend upon God. They don't have to repent. They don't want to have to say, I am a sinner. I am like that dead man, almost dead man at the side of the road. And all I can do is to embrace Jesus and the, the uh, life that he wants uh, to give me. So if you're here today and maybe you've grown up and when you think about going to heaven, you're thinking, oh, man, I hope I make it. I hope I'm good enough. You're, you're on the wrong track, friends. This parable of Christ teaches you there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Remember, the lawyer said, what shall I do? You can't do anything. It's already done, right, on the cross. And therefore, you just need to open your arms to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm beaten down. I'm spiritually dead. I need you. Please save me through your work on the cross. Forgive me. That's how a person becomes a Christ follower. And if you've never made that decision, if that's never been clear to you, I would encourage you to come to our prayer room. Talk with someone you know who knows more about this. Come up to myself or Rich or uh, one of the pastors, Justin. We'd love to tell you more about it. Now, the beautiful thing about this is when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is... Uh, gospel is where it starts. Because what happens uh, when Jesus Christ comes along and picks you up and brings you into his family, that is when the process of restoration begins. And in my life, what God is continuing to do is I'm still in that inn. <laughs> I'm still feeding Sylvia. <laughs> and he's hovering over me. Jesus is hovering over me and he's caring for me. And he's strengthening me, and he's providing for all my needs. And I'm still a broken sinner, but I'm justified in the eyes of God. But he's restoring me, and that's the nature of the Christian life. It's a beautiful restoration process that 
Jesus Christ does within us and he empowers us to do supernatural things like love our neighbors as ourselves and to love God in ways we never imagined. And that's the beautiful journey we're on. And so this is how it all comes together with the idea of compassion is that when we reach out to people and show compassion, which we'll talk about in the next several weeks, it's all over Scripture about how we should show compassion to people. We show compassion to people ultimately in order to show them the ultimate compassion, and that is the gospel. Right? Compassion through UNICEF or uh, United Way, that's a temporal type of thing in wonderful organizations. But when we do it in the name of Jesus Christ, that can give them an eternal solution to their problem. And that's what we're so excited about talking about and getting the news out. So I want to encourage you as you go throughout this next week to think about people who are in need. How many people know someone who uh, is in a tough marriage right now? Raise your hand. How many people know somebody who uh, is going through a divorce? How many people know somebody who lost a job? How many people know somebody who's in financial has a financial challenge? How many people know somebody who's sick? How many people know somebody who's dying? They're all around us. They're everywhere. We need to ask the Lord to direct us. We can't take care of everybody, but Lord, show me, help me to open my eyes in order how can I engage in that person's life? We'll be talking a lot more about that. All right. Well, we have a, we're going to jump to November's memory verse. Is there a new memory verse? Be merciful even as your father is merciful. We have our next steps. If you guys can take out your programs at this time and tear off the communication slip and fill that out. If you're a guest, it's so good to have you. Please stop by our Welcome Center, pick up some brownies, fill out as much information as you feel comfortable. If you are a regular attender, just put the names of the adults down. We'd love everyone to fill that out. It helps us greatly in caring uh, for you. And uh, then there's some next steps here. And why don't we list them all? And uh, just circle the one uh, that relates most to what you want to take away uh, from this service. And if we could ushers come forward at this time, let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for this powerful parable. And Lord, I pray that we'd never forget how weak we are. So many times we think that you know, after you've restored us to a certain point, we can take it from there. And that is so untrue. Help us to live on the independence on you every day. And Lord, fill us with a heart of compassion for people who are lost. You know, if we get to see them as we walk, as we drive down the highway, if, they, if everybody who didn't know you was pulled over to the side of the road, it would be a quick commute to work. But uh, the point, Lord, being is we just need to see people who are in need and show them compassion, not only to meet their temporal need, but their eternal need. Thank you for these generous people who give regularly to this ministry, to you, in order to help us continue to reach people for you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you could take-